Chapter 3, Section 1 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 3, Tombs, Section 1, Mastabas. The Egyptians regarded man as composed of various different entities, each having its separate life and functions. First, there was the body, then the ka, or double, which was a less solid duplicate of the corporeal form, a coloured but ethereal projection of the individual, reproducing him feature for feature. The double of a child was as a child, the double of a woman was as a woman, the double of a man was as a man. After the double, ka, came the soul, by, or ba, which was popularly represented as a human-headed bird. After the soul came the ku, or the luminous, a spark from the divine fire. None of these elements were in their own natures imperishable. Left to themselves, they would hasten to dissolution, and the man would thus die a second time, that is to say, he would be annihilated. The piety of the survivors found means, however, to avert this catastrophe. By the process of embalmment, they could for ages suspend the decomposition of the body, while by means of prayer and offerings they saved the double, the soul, and the luminous from the second death, and secured to them all that was necessary for the prolongation of their existence. The double never left the place where the mummy reposed, but the soul and the coup went forth to follow the gods. They, however, kept perpetually returning, like travellers who come home after an absence. The tomb was, therefore, a dwelling-house, the eternal house of the dead, compared with which the houses of the living were but wayside inns, and these eternal houses were built after a plan which exactly corresponded to the Egyptian idea of the afterlife. The eternal house must always include the private rooms of the soul, which were closed on the day of the burial, and which no living being could enter without being guilty of sacrilege. It must also contain the reception rooms of the double, where priests and friends brought their wishes or their offerings, the two being connected by a passage of more or less length. The arrangement of these three parts varied according to the period, the place, the nature of the ground, and the caprice of each person. The rooms accessible to the living were frequently built above ground and formed a separate edifice. Sometimes they were excavated in the mountain side, as well as the tomb itself. Sometimes again, the vault where the mummy lay hidden, and the passages leading to that vault, were in one place, while the place of prayer and offering stood far off in the plain. But whatever variety there may be found as to detail and arrangement, the principle is always the same. The tomb is a dwelling, and it is constructed in such wise as may best promote the well-being and ensure the preservation of the dead. 1. Mastabas The most ancient monumental tombs are found in the necropolis of Memphis, between Abu Roash and Dashur, and in that of Medim. They belong to the Mastaba type. The mastaba is a quadrangular building, which from a distance might be taken for a truncated pyramid. 
Many mastabas are from 30 to 40 feet in height, 150 feet in length, and 80 feet in width, while others do not exceed 10 feet in height or 15 feet in length. The faces are symmetrically inclined and generally smooth, though sometimes the courses retreat like steps. The materials employed are stone or brick. The stone is limestone cut in blocks about two and a half feet long, two feet high and twenty inches thick. Three sorts of limestone were employed. For the best tombs, the fine white limestone of Tura, or the compact siliceous limestone of Saqqara. For ordinary tombs, the Mali limestone of the Libyan hills. This last, impregnated with salt and veined with crystalline gypsum, is a friable material and unsuited for ornamentation. The bricks are of two kinds, both being merely sun-dried. The most ancient kind, which ceased to be used about the time of the 6th dynasty, is small, 8.7 by 4.3 by 5.5 inches, yellowish and made of nothing but sand mixed with a little clay and grit. The later kind is of mud mixed with straw, black, compact, carefully moulded, and of a fair size. 15 by 7.1 by 5.5 inches. The style of the internal construction differs according to the material employed by the architect. In nine cases out of ten, the stone mastabas are but outwardly regular in construction. The core is of roughly quarried marble mixed with rubbish and limestone fragments hastily bedded in layers of mud or piled up without any kind of mortar. The brick mastabas are nearly always of homogeneous construction. The facing bricks are carefully mortared, and the joints inside are filled up with sand. That the mastaba should be canonically oriented, the four faces set to the four cardinal points, and the longer axis laid from north to south, was indispensable. But practically, the masons took no special care about finding the true north, and the orientation of these structures is seldom exact. At Giza, the mastabas are distributed according to a symmetrical plan, and ranged in regular streets. At Saqqara, at Abu Sir, and at Dashur, they are scattered irregularly over the surface of the plateau, crowded in some places and wide apart in others. The Mussulman cemetery at Siut perpetuates the like arrangement and enables us to this day to realise the aspect of the Memphite necropolis towards the close of the ancient empire. A flat, unpaved platform, formed by the top course of the core, covers the top of the mass of the mastaba. This platform is scattered over with terracotta vases, nearly buried in the loose rubbish. These lie thickly over the hollow interior, but are more sparsely deposited elsewhere. The walls are bare. The doors face to the eastward side. They occasionally face toward the north or south side, but never towards the west. In theory, there should be two doors, one for the dead, the other for the living. In practice, the entrance for the dead was a mere niche, high and narrow, cut in the eastward face, near the northeast corner. At the back of this niche are marked vertical lines, framing in a closed space. Even this imitation of a door was sometimes omitted, and the soul was left to manage as best it might. The door of the living was made more or less important according to the greater or less development of the chamber to which it led. The chamber and door are in some cases represented by only a shallow recess, decorated with a stealer and a table of offerings. This is sometimes protected by a wall, which projects from the façade, thus forming a kind of forecourt open to the north. The forecourt is square in the tomb of Kapia, and irregular in that of Neferhotep at Saqqara. When the plan includes one or more chambers, 
the door sometimes opens in the middle of a small architectural façade or under a little portico supported by two square pillars without either base or abacus the doorway is very simple the two jams being ornamented with bas-reliefs representing the deceased and surmounted by a cylindrical drum engraved with his name and titles in the tomb of pohanaka at sakara the jams are two pilasters each crowned with two lotus flowers but this example is so far unique the chapel was usually small and lost in the mass of the building but no precise rule determined its size in the tomb of t there is first a portico then a square antechamber with pillars then a passage with a small room on the right leading to the last chamber there was room enough in this tomb for many persons and in point of fact the wife of t reposed by the side of her husband when the monument belonged to only one person the structure was less complicated a short and narrow passage led to an oblong chamber upon which it opened at right angles so that the place is in the shape of a t the end wall is generally smooth but sometimes it is recessed just opposite the entrance passage and then the plan forms a cross of which the head is longer or shorter this was the ordinary arrangement but the architect was free to reject it if he so pleased here a chapel consists of two parallel lobbies connected by a cross passage elsewhere the chamber opens from a corner of the passage again in the tomb of pahotep the site was hemmed in by older buildings and was not large enough the builders therefore joined the new mastaba to the older one in such wise as to give them one entrance in common and thus the chapel of one is enlarged by absorbing the whole of the space occupied by the other the chapel was the reception room of the double it was there that the relations friends and priests celebrated the funerary sacrifices on the days prescribed by law that is to say quote, at the feasts of the commencement of the seasons at the feast of thoth on the first day of the year at the feast of igaya at the feast of sothus on the day of the procession of the god min at the feast of shewbread at the feasts of the months and the half months and the days of the week End quote. offerings were placed in the principal room at the foot of the west wall at the exact spot leading to the entrance of the eternal home of the dead unlike the qibla of mosques or mussulman oratories this point is not always oriented toward the same quarter of the compass though often found to the west in earlier times it was indicated by a real door low and narrow framed and decorated like the door of an ordinary house but not pierced through an inscription graven upon the lintel in large readable characters commemorated the name and rank of the owner his portrait either sitting or standing was carved upon the jams and a scene sculptured or painted on the space above the door represented him seated before a small round table stretching out his hand towards the repast placed upon it a flat slab or offering table built into the floor between the two uprights of the doorway received the votive meats and drinks the general appearance of the recess is that of a somewhat narrow doorway as a rule it was empty but occasionally it contained a portrait statue of the dead standing with one foot forward as though about to cross the gloomy threshold of his tomb descend the few steps before him advance into his reception room or chapel and pass out into the sunlight as a matter of fact the stella symbolized the door leading to the private apartments of the dead a door closed and sealed to the living it was inscribed on doorposts and lintels and its inscription was no mere epitaph for the information of future generations all the details which it gave as to the name rank functions and family of the deceased 
were intended to secure the continuity of his individuality and civil status in the life beyond death a further and essential object of its inscriptions was to provide him with food and drink by means of prayers or magic formulae constraining one of the gods of the dead osiris or anubis to act as intermediary between him and his survivors and to set apart for his use some portion of the provisions offered for his sake in sacrifice to one or other of these deities by this agency the cars or doubles of these provisions were supposed to be sent into the next world to gladden and satisfy the human car indicated to the divine intermediary offerings of real provisions were not indispensable to this end any chance visitor in times to come who should simply repeat the formula of the stealer aloud would thereby secure the immediate enjoyment of all the good things enumerated to the unknown dead whom he evoked the living having taken their departure the double was supposed to come out of his house and feed in principle this ceremony was bound to be renewed year by year till the end of time but the egyptians ere long discovered that this could not be after two or three generations the dead of former days were neglected for the benefit of those more recently departed even when a pious foundation was established with a revenue payable for the expenses of the funerary repasts and of the priests whose duty it was to prepare them the evil hour of oblivion was put off for only a little longer sooner or later there came a time when the double was reduced to seek his food among the town refuse and amid the ignoble and corrupt filth which lay rejected on the ground then in order that the offerings consecrated on the day of burial might for ever preserve their virtues the survivors conceived the idea of drawing and describing them on the walls of the chapel the painted or sculpted reproduction of persons and things ensured the reality of those persons and things for the benefit of the one on whose account they were executed thus the double saw himself depicted upon the walls in the act of eating and drinking and he ate and drank this notion once accepted the theologians and artists carried it out to the fullest extent not content with offering mere pictured provisions they added thereto the semblance of the domains which produced them together with the counterfeit presentment of the herds workmen and slaves belonging to the same was a supply of meat required to last for eternity it was enough no doubt to represent the several parts of an ox or gazelle the shoulder the leg the ribs the breast the heart the liver the head properly prepared for the spit but it was equally easy to retrace the whole history of the animal its birth its life in the pasturelands its slaughter the cutting up of the carcass and the presentation of the joints so also as regarded the cakes and bread offerings there was no reason why the whole process of tillage harvesting corn threshing storage and donating should not be rehearsed clothing ornaments and furniture served in like manner as a pretext for the introduction of spinners weavers goldsmiths and cabinet makers the master is of superhuman proportions and towers above his people and his cattle some prophetic tableaux show him in his funeral bark speeding before the wind with all sail set having started on his way to the next world the very day he takes possession of his new abode elsewhere we see him as actively superintending his imaginary vassals as formerly he superintended his vassals of flesh and blood varied and irregular as they may appear these scenes are not placed at random upon the walls they all converge towards the semblance of a door which was supposed to communicate with the interior of the tomb those nearest to the door represent the sacrifice and the offering 
the earlier stages of preparation and the preliminary work being depicted in retrograde order as that door is left farther and farther behind at the door itself the figure of the master seems to await his visitors and bid them welcome the details are of infinite variety the inscriptions run to less or greater length according to the caprice of the scribe the false door loses its architectural character and is frequently replaced by a mere stiller engraved with the name and rank of the master yet whether large or small whether richly decorated or not decorated at all the chapel is always the dining-room or rather the larder to which the dead man has access when he feels hungry on the other side of the wall was constructed a hiding-place in the form of either a high and narrow cell or a passage without outlet to this hiding-place archaeologists have given the arab name of serdab most mustabas contain but one others contain three or four these serdabs communicated neither with each other nor with the chapel and are as it were buried in the masonry if connected at all with the outer world it is by means of an aperture in the wall about as high up as a man's head and so small that the hand can with difficulty pass through it to this orifice came the priests with murmured prayers and perfumes of incense within lurked the devil ready to profit by these memorial rites or to accept them through the medium of his statues as when he lived upon the earth the man needed a body in which to exist his corpse disfigured by the process of embalmment bore but a distant resemblance to his former self the mummy again was destructible and might easily be burned dismembered scattered to the winds once it had disappeared what was to become of the double the portrait statues walled up inside the serdab became when consecrated the stone or wooden bodies of the defunct the pious care of his relatives multiplied these bodies and consequently multiplied the supports of the double a single body represented a single chance of existence for the double twenty bodies represented twenty such chances for the same reason statues also of his wife his children and his servants were placed with the statues of the deceased the servants being modelled in the act of performing their domestic duties such as grinding corn kneading dough and applying a coat of pitch to the inside surfaces of wine jars as for the figures which were merely painted on the walls of the chapel they detached themselves and assumed material bodies inside the serdab notwithstanding these precautions all possible means were taken to guard the remains of the fleshy body from natural decay and the depredations of the spoiler in the tomb of t an inclined passage starting from the middle of the first hall leads from the upper world to the sepulchral vault but this is almost a solitary exception generally the vault is reached by way of a vertical shaft constructed in the centre of the platform or more rarely in a corner of the chapel the depth of this shaft varies from ten to one hundred feet it is carried down through the masonry it pierces the rock and at the bottom a low passage in which it is not possible to walk upright leads in a southward direction to the vault there sleeps the mummy in a massive sarcophagus of limestone red granite or basalt sometimes though rarely the sarcophagus bears the name and titles of the deceased still more rarely it is decorated with ornamental sculpture some examples are known which reproduce the architectural decoration of an egyptian house with its doors and windows the furniture of the vault is of the simplest character some alabaster perfume vases a few cups into which the priest had poured drops of the various libation liquids offered to the dead some large red pottery jars for water a headrest of wood or alabaster a scribe's votive palette 
having laid the mummy in the sarcophagus and cemented the lid the workmen strewed the floor of the vault with the quarters of oxen and gazelles which had just been sacrificed they next carefully walled up the entrance into the passage and filled the shaft at the top with a mixture of sand earth and stone chips being profusely watered this mass solidified and became an almost impenetrable body of concrete the corpse left to itself received no visits now save from the soul which from time to time quitted the celestial regions wherein it voyaged with the gods and came down to reunite itself with the body the sepulchral vault was the abode of the soul as the funerary chapel was the abode of the double up to the time of the sixth dynasty the walls of the vault are left bare only once did mariette find a vault containing half-effaced inscriptions from the book of the dead in eighteen eighty one however i discovered some tombs at saqqara in which the vault is decorated in preference to the chapel these tombs are built with large bricks a niche and a stela sufficing for the reception of sacrificial offerings in place of the shaft they contain a small rectangular court in the western corner of which is placed the sarcophagus over the sarcophagus was erected a limestone chamber just as long and as wide as the sarcophagus itself and about three and a half feet high this was roofed in flat slabs at the end or in the wall to the right was a niche which answered the purpose of a serdab and above the flat roof was next constructed an arch of about one foot and a half radius the space above the arch being filled in with horizontal courses of brickwork up to the level of the platform the chamber occupies about two-thirds of the cavity and looks like an oven with the mouth open sometimes the stone walls rest on the lid of the sarcophagus the chamber having evidently been built after the interment had taken place generally speaking however these walls rest on brick supports so that the sarcophagus may be opened or closed when required the decoration which is sometimes painted sometimes sculptured is always the same each wall was a house stocked with the objects depicted or catalogued upon its surface and each was therefore carefully provided with a fictitious door through which the double had access to his goods on the left wall he found a pile of provisions and a table of offerings on the end wall a store of household utensils as well as a supply of linen and perfumes the name and quantity of each being duly registered these paintings more briefly sum up the scenes depicted in the chapels of ordinary mastabas transferred from their original position to the walls of an underground cellar they were the more surely guaranteed against such possible destruction as might befall them in chambers open to all comers while upon their preservation depended the length of time during which the dead man would retain possession of the property which they represented end of chapter three section one recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia